Welcome to What We're Learning About Learning, a podcast about higher ed teaching and learning produced by the Center for New Designs and Learning and Scholarship at Georgetown University. I'm Kim Heisman-Lebreski. And I'm Joe King. Conversations about teaching and learning have a way of slipping into either-or dynamics. For example, through the difficulties of the past several years, many faculty have built more flexibility into their classrooms and have changed their practices to attend to students' individual needs. Others have raised important questions about rigor. How, in today's classroom, do we continue to challenge students and hold them to high standards? This set of questions is sometimes reduced to dichotomous soundbites of flexibility versus rigor. But, you know, ¿por qué no los dos? In other words, how can we provide an engaging, rigorous, and flexible environment for our students? In this episode, we spoke with three Georgetown faculty from different disciplines, psychology, law, and biology, about how they inspire excellence in their students by engaging and challenging them. These faculty also teach in various contexts and environments, large classes and seminars, standard exams, and project-based learning. Their shared goal as faculty is to engage their students in ways that are both compassionate and rigorous at the same time. In addition, these faculty are widely known among students to succeed in finding that balance. So we wanted to hear what they had to say. I'm Abigail Marsh. I'm a professor of psychology, and I'm also affiliate faculty in the interdisciplinary program in neuroscience. My name is Charisma Howell. I'm a visiting associate professor and director of the Georgetown Street Law Program at Georgetown University Law Center. My name is MC Chun. I am in the biology department at Georgetown. I'm part of a big teaching team for Foundations in Biology 1. Foundations in Biology 1 is taught every semester in the fall, where it is the, a large course is about 250 people. These three professors each offered their perspectives on how their roles as teachers have evolved over time. Here's Abigail Marsh. It really, I think, goes back to the struggle and challenge I experienced the first couple of years as an instructor trying to get a sense of what I was doing. <laughs> like, what is the purpose of having an instructor? And that was the thing that I was really struggling with at the beginning is what are they supposed to be getting out of this that they couldn't get from reading the book? It's a great book, really well written, pretty funny, very comprehensive. It covers so much more material than I ever could in a lecture. What's the point of me? And it took me a little while. And it also took me encountering a fantastic cognitive neuroscience study by a researcher named Matthias Gruber. And the study he did basically showed that inducing a state of curiosity in people in the study, so asking them questions that they're naturally curious to know the answer to, like where in the world do trees grow with naturally square trunks, right? You would ask subjects questions like that and they would rate how curious they would be to know the answer. One, they found that when people were feeling more curiosity to know the answer to a question, they were much more likely to remember the answer later. And amazingly, they were even more likely to remember things like the faces that they had seen in between seeing the question and the answer when they were in this natural state of curiosity, like where in the world do trees grow with naturally square trunks? Abigail's focus on inviting curiosity in students not only invites excitement about course materials, which makes classes enjoyable, it also makes content stick. So that to me was just this like sort of a revelatory moment. It was like, oh. I can't do the learning for students at all. Like, we know that. Learning is a, is a completely self-done experience. What I can do 
A is like, you know, give the information that needs to be learned and create in students the, the internal desire to learn it, to, to try to present the information in such a way that they want to understand it. They, they want to get it. Like they, they, they find it intrinsically interesting and then they will work harder to try to learn it, I think. And they'll be, it'll be easier to learn it. And I tell this to students now explicitly all the time. I'm like, I have this amazing hack to help you learn. And it's curiosity. Like if you just take a moment to generate a state of internal curiosity while you're learning something in a class, A, it's more fun. Like curiosity is a wonderful state of being. Like you get all, it's like a dopaminergic state, like the, the circuit in your brain that release dopamine. That is what curiosity is. And that's what the neuroimaging part of the study showed. So A, it's fun to feel curious rather than bored. But also it makes the whole process so much easier because you just remember stuff better when you're in a state of engagement. And so I'm like, okay, that's my goal as a professor is to make them as excited about the material as I am and make them want to learn. This is a very different role than the old sage on the stage model. Abigail uses the word coach to describe what she does. And so I I tell them, I think of myself as your academic coach. You know, and everybody who's ever done a sport or played an instrument or done any kind of other, you know, sustained practice in any skill knows that if you don't push yourself, you never get better at it. And like, what is more important than improving your own ability to think and learn and reason and understand and communicate? And Charisma sees things in a similar way, where she teaches her classes with a keen eye toward inspiring academic excellence in her students by believing in them and talking with them. We want them to be the ones doing the talking and the thinking. Our job is to guide, encourage, and, and design a course that allows them to be academically excellent. The best tool that we have to motivate and inspire students, be yourself, know what you value, live your values, and to be available for your students. MC Chan suggests another way that professors can offer new challenges to their students, sharing their field-specific expertise. In terms of the material, what I oftentimes think about when I, when I teach this material, how am I better than the Khan Academy? How is it that what I do in my classroom, how is that better than a YouTube video? In terms of material, it comes down to context and perspective. And the importance for me in terms of uh, for the material is uh, to explain what is important, what is not important, and why are the things that I uh, are certain things important, not only for right now, but for the future. The value proposition here, what we bring into the classroom is not the knowledge, but the expertise. What we learned in our training, what we learned in graduate school, what we learned in uh, our, our former careers is uh, we learned how to think. And we need to learn to teach our students how to think in the discipline. Uh, one example I, I commonly use for, for Foundations Biology 1 is that oftentimes students come to Foundations Biology 1 from high school thinking that the way that science is done is via the scientific method. Now, as I told my class the other day, the scientific method slaps, right? There are great parts of it. But anyone who has done science, right, who has practice research knows that the scientific method oftentimes does not coincide fully with what we actually do when we do research, when we do science. It's not, it does not coincide fully with how science is done. So what I provide in the classroom is really based upon my years of, of expertise, my years of being in the discipline to provide a clearer picture and to teach my students how to think within the discipline, how to work within the discipline. 
in order to prepare them how, for however they want to engage with the discipline in their lives. We teach students how to learn, not necessarily just what to learn. We observed a strong pattern among all the faculty with whom we spoke. Drawing from their expertise, they all found creative ways to motivate, inspire, and engage students in ways that fostered success for many of their students. Here's Charisma again. I really believe our job is to create opportunities for our students to be successful doing something new and challenging. That's our job. We've been beyond the horizon. We're the experts. We know the lay of the land. We have a really deep understanding of the principles, the concepts, the skills. So I know where you're going. I want you to get there. I, I want to encourage you to be great. And our job is to make it possible for our law students, or for our students, not just the law students, for our students to be successful, um, but while challenging them, right? It's, I think of it like you go to the gym, so you pick up two five pound dumbbells, you lift those weights for a couple weeks, and after, maybe in the beginning it was heavy, but after a couple weeks, a month or two, they're not so heavy. Well, now my job is to give you 10 pound weights. And we're gonna work through that for a little bit. Now I'm gonna give you a 15 pound weight and then we're gonna work through that. But I'm constantly monitoring your progress and I wanna give you enough of a challenge so that um, we are exercising new skills, we are, in, we are engaging in the growth process, but it's not more than you can handle. This can be challenging for the instructor too. That I think is the hardest part about being a professor is giving that intentional individualized um, instruction to your students. We have to be, we have to do our very best to, to um, not only think about what we want globally for our course, but how are we gonna help our students get there? And one student's path, they may go around to the left, they may take an extra 10 miles to get to the same destination. Another student goes straight from A to B. I don't, I don't know if it is possible to have a universally applied method to get every student to the end goal. The end goal is, in part, academic excellence. In an era when we're all wrestling with questions of flexibility and rigor, we were curious to hear more about how these professors helped students meet challenges and achieve academic excellence. There's a reflective component and there is a reactive component. So I'm thinking about what it is that I'm doing, am I being effective, and I'm incorporating what I'm learning about that process into future work product. And excellence is always a process. I don't think it's a destination. I think it's something you're constantly striving to achieve. In our conversation with Abigail Marsh, she reflected on the point of rigor. If whatever I'm asking my students to do isn't hard, it, they're not getting much out of it. So it, uh, really that's what rigor means, is it needs to be a little hard. Um, everybody needs to feel challenged, right? Even students who, you know, have, have skated in the past. I expect them to work hard to learn the material that I've set out for them because I believe I've made it intrinsically motivating. I believe in the value of the material. I believe that they will also find the material inherently valuable. You have to have knowledge to learn new knowledge, right? You have to have knowledge to be creative because creativity requires joining pieces of knowledge in your brain that have never been combined in quite that way before. And actually learning skills requires knowledge too. So like I do, I like the, the, them understanding the, the raw materials that I'm teaching them is really important, but 
I also, um, and I'm really explicit with my students about this now also, that pushing yourself intellectually to get better at sort of learning and remembering and understanding things and communicating and all the important cognitive skills that we teach them, the more you push yourself, the better at them you'll get. Here's MC's perspective. For me, when I try to define academic excellence, it's really about the ability of students to grow from one level of knowledge or understanding to the next, or one level of skills to the next, which means that really teaching for academic excellence is really about the acquisition or teaching my students to acquire and practice the skills of learning. Uh, when we talk about academic excellence, um, I think too often it is juxtaposed against academic flexibility and oftentimes juxtaposed against uh, equity, not only of access, but equity of experience in the classroom as well. For me, I think I think of that as a false dichotomy. I think that uh, both can exist at the same time. Charisma shared examples of what academic excellence looks like in her classroom. I see it every single semester in my street law course. And what we, the faculty, attempt to do are give our students multiple opportunities to be successful while also challenging them by finding out what it is, what is it that they want to accomplish, what is it that they want to achieve, and forever moving them towards that goal. And in that process, we ask them to do reflection. We ask them to consider our feedback, and we ask them to incorporate that feedback into future iterations of their classes. So it is, it is immediately applied. I mean, it's applied every single day in everything that we do in my course that's constantly striving to get the law, the law students to be um, thoughtful, to be intentional about the work that they do. Because it's very, very important and it is really impactful. In this view, adaptation is an important route to excellence. Our goal as educators is academic excellence. If our goal is to give them opportunities to be successful at something new, we're obligated to meet them where they are. Academic excellence applies to both the student and the instructor, right? We, I, there can be a tendency to believe that the instructor has completed that journey, that they have reached the end of that path, when in fact our job is to constantly reimagine, reexamine, accept feedback from our students and attempt to provide them with the highest quality experience that we can. You have to adapt. Surely it is the goal of a university education to improve these skills in our students. Like surely, like what else are they here for if not to improve their cognitive abilities? And if they're not pushed, they won't grow. My job is to give you high standards to reach for, give you all the tools that you need to work for those standards, and then I expect you to engage in the work that is needed to help improve your cognitive abilities. And I really believe that all of them can. I make it clear how much faith I have in their ability to to, to meet the goals that I've set out for them, but they're gonna have to work to do it. Like, why do people run marathons? Why do people climb mountains, right? Why do people do these things? It's because it feels meaningful to have done something that you know is a challenge and you did it anyways. And I make it clear as I can to my students that I have great faith in how capable they are. And, um, but they have to work, right? To, to <laughs> demonstrate their capabilities and to increase their capabilities. MC mentioned a different habit of mind to focus on in our students, persistence. When we talk about rewarding persistence, what we mean is that uh, as course designers, as educators, 
what we need to do in our courses is to really provide opportunity for students to practice and learn persistence. I'm going to fully admit, I haven't learned how the ability to do this without more work for myself or for, for, my, for my teammates, right? When we talk about being able to provide opportunities for persistence, that means more work for us. It means that we have to provide ways for students to hand in rewrites or to redo questions and exams and to force to grade them. It means holding, holding tutoring sessions for students that want that extra help, that need, uh, uh, that, that, that are looking for that extra uh, for the extra work, uh, uh, help for to in order to in order to persist in the class in order to uh, gain the knowledge in the class that they want to gain. It means more office hours. It might mean keeping track of students and really, really getting to know them and what motivates them to take the course that they're taking with us. What motivates them to take the course that they're taking with us, and also to build that mentoring relationships. And when we build that personal relationship, part of that personal relationship. A natural conclusion from that is that students will actually want to try harder. They want to they want to persist in our classes because they want to maintain that relationship that is built around the fact that uh, we meet one another in the class. So uh, rewarding persistence is a big part of that. One facet of academic excellence is academic persistence, and so we want to encourage that in our students. Abigail told a story about a student who had lost motivation and how she worked with him. He was like, I don't like, it doesn't matter like if I miss a deadline. It's just I've stopped caring. Like it doesn't really seem to matter. And you know, I couldn't do it for him. Like I couldn't bring back that caring for him. But I had faith based on the evidence I've seen and you know, having done this for enough years, I was like, I believe in you. Like you were a student who cared about school before. That person's still there. You can bring it back. You have to bring it back. I can't, I can't give you a good grade in this class if you don't do well on the exams. Like, I can't. I might have wanted to, right? That was my compassion. Because, again, I think it's incredibly important for my students to understand how much I care about each one of the individuals. I totally do. You know, and I, I, th I'm, I believe that they know that um, because I, I do. And, and, and I think that if you do, then I think it is apparent. And I was like, you know, I'm giving this scaffolding. I'm telling you what to do. I trotted out the note cards. I'm like, this is how to do it. I, I have faith in you. Like, I know you can do this. And I remember and during the final exam, like during the, when I was handing out the exams, I, I, I was like, I have faith in you. Like, I looked at him. I'm like, I know you can do this. Um, and he totally did. And, um, and he, he found that, that drive and that ability to like really apply himself and focus again and, um, you know, he really had some very kind things to say at the end of the semester. And I think I would have been doing him a real disservice if I had looked at him and been like, I know the challenges you've been through. It's been a rough couple of years for you. I'm going to drop my standards for you. I think he would have, I 100% believe he would have been worse off if I had done that. I had a student, this was maybe three years ago, who came, took my course, really struggled, was struggling in law school. And one day came into my office just to get some supplies. And I said, are you doing okay? And the student couldn't even look at me before their tear, they, you know, their face filled with tears. And I said, just come, come in. If you're comfortable, come on in. Let's talk, just tell me how you are. No law school, no none of that stuff. How are you doing? And the student was really struggling. It was a tough time for this particular student. 
And of course, afterwards they apologized. I didn't mean to cry. And I just told them, don't apologize for being human. We're all struggling right now. There is no need for you to be sorry about that. And after the student graduated, they sent me a note that said they never forgot the grace that was extended to them. And that's what they want to bring in their work with clients. They decided to go into indigent defense work. Those are the times where we are inspiring. I think where you can have genuine, authentic relationships, show your students that I'm serious about your success. I'm deeply invested and motivated by your success. And I see you as a person and as a student. I found those are the times that the students are most inspired. And we're modeling for them good citizenship. We're modeling for them collaboration. We're modeling for them how to create trusting relationships. MC helped us understand how he creates personal interactions with students, even in large classes, which creates a sense of belonging and community, which in turn keeps students coming back. So what does that look like if I have a, if I have a class of 100 uh, students, in, in the case of Biology 101, in front of me, all first years, and I'm trying to build a relationship with them? First off, uh, uh, as I say, kudos to the biology department because they give me the resources to do so. Uh, I hire via the biology department about 10 um, uh, mentors, peer mentors, uh, near peer mentors, uh, uh, who are also biology majors to, uh, to guide their flocks in, the, in biology 101. Their, their uh, position or their, their job uh, is really to provide uh, one to a few to provide small group interactions to really guide the students to uh, to email them the day before their first exams to see how they are doing and to meet with them once a week and talk through different parts of being a biology major. We also try and break down the hidden curriculum uh, for our students. Uh, uh, we, we talk about how we not only encourage them, but we give them uh, various incentives to visit professors during office hours. Um, uh, try, by the way, we have renamed them student hours uh, recently in, in Foundation for RG1. We give them incentives to form groups. We provide snacks for those groups. Um, we provide um, we provide access to professors, uh, uh, to research professors. Research professors will actually come to Biology 101 and talk to the students, not in terms of a seminar in front of the class, but really small group conversations about what it means to join a lab. One's discipline can act as a professor's North Star, no matter the field. Charisma connected her work in law and justice with her approach to teaching. Someone many years ago said that one of the goals of street law is to teach justice with justice, right? To teach law, legal systems, practices, but do it in a way where everyone has equal opportunity to be successful. Everybody has equal opportunity to try. Everyone can be themselves in this space. And if we are encouraging our law students, if we as instructors are encouraging our street law students to embrace being vulnerable, to embrace trying new things, to embrace making mistakes, they will then extend those opportunities to their students. So it is about modeling the behavior that we want to see. I've been mid-semester and they came to us and they were like, it's not working. <laughs> I'm tired. I'm not the best for my students. I don't feel like I'm giving it full effort. And we listened. We listened. We adapted. Um, and we were able to figure out creative ways to get what we needed. 
without burdening the students. So, you know, I, I say all that to say, we have to be just as honest about the mistakes and opportunities that we have as faculty so that our students can see that behavior and say, okay, well, it's not going well with the client, right? So talking about real world application, I made a mistake. We all make mistakes. What are you gonna do now? You made a mistake. Are you going to just continue the course? Are you gonna go back to your client and say, you know what, I made a mistake and this is what I'm gonna do to rectify it. If we don't model the behavior as experts, it feels unfair to then expect the students to go out and do something they never saw us do. So we have to be just as honest and as vulnerable and um, as willing to change and adapt as we're asking the students to be. You're not supposed to use what you have seen over the last 24 years of your life where somebody stands at the front of the room and they attempt to fill a bucket. You know, you're trying to pour knowledge into your students. You are supposed to create avenues for them to ask questions that leads them to the answer. So everything we're asking them to do is contrary to many of their educational experiences. So if we aren't good models, if we aren't held to our own standard, our students, it's just not, they're not gonna be successful because uh, what we're asking them to do is, is really complicated and tough. So we have to be just as dedicated to our mission as we're asking them to be. It'd be hypocritical otherwise. We were so impressed by the energy that these three faculty devote to considering how best to help their students grow through the right balance of challenge, compassion, and motivation. It's truly inspiring, and we hope it is for you too. Speaking of hopes, we hope you've enjoyed this episode of What We're Learning About Learning. This episode was made possible by many people at Candles, including Molly Chihak, Eddie Maloney, David Ebenbach, Sophie Grabiak, Ellery Syverson, Stephanie Che, and Noah Leiter. And a big thanks to the faculty who contributed to this episode, Abigail Marsh, MC Chan, and Charisma Howell. Thanks also to Milo Stout for creating awe-inspiring music for the podcast. Seriously, it's so good. For more information about our podcast series and our guests, check out our show notes, where you'll find links to previous episodes, information about how to share your thoughts and ideas with us, our website and blog, and other resources. By the way, the answer to that question that Abigail mentioned towards the top of the episode, the one that induced a state of curiosity and helped people remember the things that they learned between hearing the question and knowing the answer, well, some trees grow into naturally square trunks in Panama. See what we did there? Again, I'm Joe Kane. And I'm Kim Heisman-Lebreski. Thanks for listening.